you for your life that teaches us how to live. Um, illumine our own hearts and minds of what things we need to apply from what we learned today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if your phone's on, please mute it. <clears throat> so there was a, after a very long and boring sermon, the parishioners filed out of the church saying nothing to the preacher. Toward the end of the line was this very thoughtful woman who always commented on sermons. Today she chose her words carefully and said, Pastor, your sermon reminded me of the peace of God and the love of God. The pastor was thrilled. No one's ever said anything like that about my preaching before. Please tell me why you felt that way. Well, it reminded me of the peace of God because it passed all understanding. <laughs> and the love of God because it endured forever. <laughs> I thought that was cute. <sighs> Anyways. <clears throat> a positive spin on a negative situation. I think that the majority of people who come to faith in Christ certainly find that they have family members who don't understand and who actually oppose their belief in the gospel message. Now, Jesus, a year earlier in his ministry, had been uh, in Nazareth and suffered rejection from his hometown Remember how he had read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 and said, today this is fulfilled in me? And that confrontation led to the people of Nazareth joining together as a community in an attempt to push him off of a cliff and kill him. I mean, that's, you talk about rejection. By the people who knew him that he did work for as a carpenter. We saw back in chapter 3 of our study that his immediate family came to take him home to Nazareth because they believed he was out of his mind. So this is a great deal of rejection by the people who are the closest to you, family and your own community. And so as we begin chapter six, we see Jesus returning once again to his hometown, graciously giving them another opportunity to respond properly to him. But what awaits him is more rejection, not just by the people in the village and town of Nazareth, but really his family. So we look at the ministry of Jesus as it's met with unbelief. And first of all, they reject him in Nazareth, despite all the evidence that was in their face. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown, and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands... We saw last week Jesus had been in Capernaum where he had healed the woman with a bleeding issue for 12 years and raised Jairus' daughter back to life. Now he's left and traveled about 20 miles southwest to Nazareth and he is now has this whole group of disciples with him as he's come home, not for a family visit, but for public ministry. And as a rabbi and teacher, he was allowed to teach in the synagogue of the local congregation as they gathered. And you notice the words used here. The people were astonished <clears throat> as he taught. They wondered uh, where did he get these things uh, that he was teaching. They were so amazed at his wisdom and his power to do miracles by his own hand. Their real problem was that he was simply the local boy doing these things. They had known Jesus all his life, but this teaching and this wisdom and these miracles did not seem possible to them coming from a local man who'd just grown up in their community. He had always been the Messiah, even when he was growing up in their community, even as he worked among them as the carpenter in Nazareth. 
Now Jesus is showing them proof as he taught them that he could teach divine words from the Father without having gone to any school. And they should have at least recognized that, and if not that, the miracles that he did, they identified him as the promised Messiah. They rejected the clear evidence that God had shown them based on the fact simply that he had grown up among them and worked among them. Unbelief today really isn't any different, is it? It rejects evidence because of prejudiced opinions. People reject Jesus despite the evidence because, of course, Scripture says they love their sin. They don't want to have their actions exposed. But it really is a matter of the heart that refuses to accept the truth, and it's often hidden behind supposed intellectualism. How many people have you known that hide behind all kinds of antagonistic excuses and intellectual arguments? If Jesus' hometown's residents rejected him after hearing him teach and seeing his miracles, we really shouldn't be that surprised by those we know and love who reject the same truth. Not only does unbelief reject clear evidence, but it's also blind to what is so obvious. And we see this in verse 3. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. They really find it impossible to believe this common carpenter who grew up in their village could be anybody important. After all, he was simply the son of Mary and a brother to the rest. I mean, scripture makes it clear Jesus had half-brothers and sisters, so I know other teachings say that Mary did not have other children, but this is what the scriptures declare. So they call Jesus the son of Mary, which really was an insult. Normally, a son was always referred to as the son of his father, whether he was dead or alive. A man called by the son of his mother was used if the father was really unknown. In other words, the rumors of Jesus being illegitimate had lived on and on and on. Two of Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude, would, went on to write the New Testament letters we, we read, but at this point, they do not believe he is the Messiah. So we read that they took offense at him, at his ordinary background, at the familiarity of him, just blinded them to clear evidence of who he was. Jesus had grown up, up amongst them, and they did not look at him objectively. They refused to open their eyes and see beyond their prejudiced opinion about Jesus. And sadly, that is the case of so many today who grow up in all of that exposure to Jesus and familiarity of truth about him, and yet they are blinded to the truth by their own sin. Next, unbelief is something that limits the power of God. And we see this in verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he wondered at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. What was the result of their unbelief? Jesus did not do many miracles because of their unbelief. Jesus' miracles were for those who already believed or were at least open to believe the message he brought and who he was. But Nazareth was dominated by hardened unbelief. And so Jesus chose not to demonstrate his power to them. His miracles had a purpose, that is to strengthen faith or lead people to faith. But the unbelief of Jesus' friends and acquaintances caused Jesus to really be amazed and wonder at their unbelief. 
the one place you would think you'd be welcomed with open arms, this is our guy, he's from Nazareth. You know, they totally reject him. They knew of his perfect character. No one could ever say, oh, I remember when he got really nasty. No, they, they knew of his character and that he was perfect in character. They heard his teaching, saw his wisdom, saw his miracles, but they refused to listen. Jesus then continued his teaching ministry around the Galilee area, but there's no record he ever returned back to Nazareth. And that brings us to the next section as Mark moves speedily along. And that is when the 12 are sent out in verses 7 through 13. And really from this passage, we see some very practical principles that are are available to see in how we minister when we're out serving the Lord. According to verse, uh, first of all, they did not go out alone. According to verse 7, the apostles now are sent by Christ to get ministry experience. Jesus sent them out in pairs. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 19.15 says, by the authority of two or three witnesses. So he sent them out. There were two witnesses confirming the truth that they were proclaiming. Going out in pairs also provides companionship because there's going to be spiritual battles ahead, and they would need one another for encouragement and to share the load of what they faced. The early church would follow this example when they sent out Paul and Barnabas, then they sent out Paul and Silas, then they sent out Barnabas and Mark. The truth is, serving the Lord brings out all kinds of spiritual battles and troubles, and we need one another to help us stay strong. There are to be no lone rangers out serving the Lord. This is why we are involved and must be involved in a local church because we do need each other. We are to stimulate one another to uh, to love and good deeds because we all struggle at times with just wanting to quit. Jesus also commissioned them as he gave each pair authority to cast out demons. They were to be his personal representatives as they preached the good news. These men were extensions of Christ as they went out on this short-term missions trip. Now, no one is an original apostle today, though they may claim to be so, but no. But we are ambassadors of Jesus, called to do the same and represent him to our world. Now, these men were to go out with confidence, and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their, in their belt, but to wear sandals and do not put on two tunics. Jesus wanted them to have their absolute confidence in God, to meet their every need as they went. He wanted them to know what it was like to see God provide while they were ministering on his behalf. uh, The way God would do this would be through the very people they were ministering to. The focus of those who serve him must be on the ministry and meeting the spiritual needs of others while trusting God to meet their physical need. I don't think a lot of TV evangelists and radio people know about this concept. Trusting God to meet physical needs. Uh, It doesn't sound like the majority pleading and begging for your money. The men were also to enter a house and stay there until you leave town. They were invited into someone's home. If they were, they were to stay there for the duration of that ministry. So they weren't to seek out a better accommodation Oh, there's someone else down the road. Uh, They were to be content while they served there. Ministry is about serving others. It's not about self. By contrast to those who would open up their home and listen to the ministry of these men, there would be communities who totally reject their message. And when they were to encounter that hostility, they were to shake off the dust from the soles of their feet for a testimony against them. This was a customary thing for Jewish people to do when they left Gentile territory before going back into Israel. 
This would be a clear statement about the spiritual condition of the people that in rejecting the message of Jesus, they were as lost pagan Gentiles. This action would serve as a testimony against these people. So there was no tiptoeing out in the night by you know, the, the apostles. There was clear communication of the consequences of rejecting this message. And ladies, we really do, I know, we t- and I tend to be, you know, so careful in what we say in a witnessing situation that we often don't really present the fact that this is life and death. You know, you can try to make it nice and Jesus loves you and died for you, but the truth is you choose to reject him. This is an eternal consequence. As Mark continues his gospel account, he takes a step back in time now to fill in the blank like, well, whatever happened to John anyway? John the Baptist. So we saw John when we started out in our study. Chapter 1, the forerunner, that popular rugged man who was pointing people to Jesus. But John had been arrested probably shortly after Jesus was baptized and likely he had been in prison for one and a half to two years. Uh, As this section describes then what it is that happened to him. As Jesus is preaching and teaching and doing miracles, And had sent out his man, Herod hears about him, and he thinks, oh, John the Baptist rose from the dead. Uh, We have seen the theme of unbelief in this chapter, and Mark's going to illustrate unbelief in the person of Herod. And along with his unbelief is guilt and fear and pride. These three things are the same things that keep people from coming to Jesus today. So the unbelief of Herod. Herod feels this guilt. The expression King Herod Um, was how Herod's servants spoke of him, but actually he was a tetrarch, which all that meant was he was a subordinate ruler in a Roman province. He was the son of Herod the Great, and when Herod the Great died, Rome was divided, divided the land into regions ruled by the three sons. Uh, The three sons, and Herod Antipas, the man we're looking at, is the one ruling over Galilee and modern-day Jordan. As the apostles went about preaching, Jesus' word finally gets back to Herod about this ministry of Jesus going on. And he supposed, uh, this supposed ruler of the Jewish people knows very little and has very little interest in what's going on with them. He's interested in his luxurious lifestyle between two palaces by the Dead Sea and in Tiberias. There's no record of Jesus ever visiting Tiberias. At last, Herod hears about the ministry and works of Jesus, and he's confused about who he is. Some said, oh, it's John the Baptist resurrected. Some said, no, it's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who would come before the Messiah doing all these miracles like he did in the Old Testament. But upon hearing different opinions, Herod was convinced that Jesus was John the Baptist, uh, who's come back from the dead. John, whom I beheaded, has risen. I think Herod was haunted by a guilty conscience for murdering him, and maybe he wondered what revenge was going to come back at him. But instead of being repentant about what he had done, instead of seeking out the truth, who is this Jesus, if it is John, whatever, instead of finding anything out, he just suppressed that guilt and refused to respond to it. When a person does have a guilty conscience, Ladies, we really need to respond (laughs) in repentance because when we don't, we harden our hearts, becomes calloused and rationalized, and our hearts get even harder. He never sought the truth in order to be forgiven, as I said. Rather, he hardened his heart until he reached a point that it didn't bother him anymore. Fast forward the life of Herod in about a year, and Jesus himself is standing before him 
in Luke 23, 4. And Herod wants, hey, do a miracle for me. He had suppressed his guilty conscience for so long, so when Jesus is finally standing right in front of Herod, his conscience is dead. The principle still holds true for all of us today. If we do not repent of sin, and of course that's speaking initially to be saved from our salvation, uh, in need of salvation, but even believers after they've come to Christ, when we are convicted by the spirit of our sin, we must not rationalize away our guilt or justification, why I can feel this way, why I can act this way. We need to deal with our sin and not harden our heart. Not only did Herod feel guilt, but he also felt fear. Now Mark shifts back a little further in time to explain how Herod is guilty of the murder of John the Baptist. Herod had arrested John and imprisoned him, as you saw, on the account of Herodias. You saw from our lesson that Herod had married his brother's wife, Philip, her first husband, had been disinherited by her, uh, the father, Herod the Great, and he lived with Herodias in Rome uh, as a private citizen, and they had the daughter, Salome. And while visiting his brother in Rome, Antipas uh, became interested in Herodias, and of course, she was thrilled to have a, a higher power situation in her life. So she agreed to marry Antipas if he would divorce his uh, wife, who his wife then was humiliated and fled to her father, who was a king, and uh, he would love, later Antipas would suffer at defeat at the hands of that father, ex-father-in-law. This is rather a soap opera story. Honestly, I read about all these relatives and uncles and aunts. It's very confusing, but it wasn't good. <laughs> okay. oh, however, John the Baptist rebuked Herod because he violated the Jewish law from Leviticus 21 that said a man who takes his brother's wife is abhorrent. John had the courage to speak the truth and confront sin. Remember, he called the Jewish religious leaders, you brood of vipers. He refers to Herodias always as Herod's brother's wife. Herod had arrested John just to satisfy the bitterness and anger of his wife. She hated John, and she would make sure he would die. I mean, I'm sure her mindset was, how dare you speak to me? How dare you tell me what I can and cannot do? However, Herod feared John because he recognized there was something special. He was a man of God. And he used to enjoy listening to John speak and kept him alive in prison away from his wife. So there was turmoil in the heart and the mind of Herod who was torn between listening to John and what he said and then this passion he had for Herodias and her hatred for John. So really a fear of people, in his case Herodias, uh, kept him from responding. And, you know, there's nothing new about that, is there? People who don't come to the Lord because fear of what an individual would think or say or control in their life. Well, the pride of Herod. It appears Herodias was waiting for the perfect opportunity to get rid of John. When she heard a birthday party was happening, I kind of suspect her uh, thoughts went into action as the daughter, Salome, uh, goes in before all the prominent male citizens and military leaders who are all drinking and who knows what all they're doing. And she comes in, the daughter of Herodias, and dances an erotic, sensual dance, pleasing Herod and all of his men guests. And he offers her in his drunken uh, state anything uh, that she would want, like a kingdom he doesn't even own, but okay. He offers her whatever you want. 
So Herodias has been waiting for this moment, and she tells her daughter goes right to her. So you really see a control thing going on here. You're going to go do this erotic dance, and then you're going to come back. Anyways, uh, she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. You know, Herod did not want to do this. His conscience was troubling him now. But because of his oath and his promise made to this young girl and all of everyone around who heard it, his pride kept him from doing what was right and saying, I was wrong. I did not intend that I'd give you the power to kill. But to save his own reputation, he followed through. And countless people are just like Herod. They care too much about the approval of others, what others would say to ever embrace Jesus and do what is right. You talk about a hard heart. You look at Herodias. But the truth of the matter is when there is resentment, because of something someone said to you. And that resentment grows. And with that grows bitterness. With that grows all kinds of anger. And it just breeds murder in the heart. And most of us don't have the courage to ever carry out physical murder to somebody you might be bitter towards. But it is to God, murder. The scene in Mark now picks up with the apostles gathering to Jesus after their ministry trip as they're going to report to him everything that's done. So that's what happened to John. And now Jesus is sending, uh, hearing back a report from his men. And really in his report, the men's report as they begin to tell him, and then all the ministry that follows, you really see the qualities that a servant for him need to have. And first of all, proper care of yourself. The apostles had worked nonstop for some time, and Jesus knew they needed a break. They needed rest. They needed time alone with him. Jesus knew and he he understands how important it is for those who serve him over and over, day after day after day, you need a rest. The principle still holds true for every servant that keeps busy in ministry. As frail humans, we have to take care of our spiritual life and our physical body. Then servants need to have compassion. Well, the disciples were a little lacking on this. Uh, As crowds of people... Uh, followed their boat. They ran around the sea in the direction that the boat was going. And when Jesus got out of the boat, this huge crowd is already waiting. And instead of being annoyed at another interruption to a planned rest, uh, Jesus was moved with compassion for them. His concern was so deep that he ached internally for them. And the reason is stated in verse 34, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus had such pity in his heart for the people who needed direction, they needed protection, they needed the truth. And what a comfort to know and realize that he feels deeply for the suffering and despair and the spiritual needs of every person. The disciples did not quite pick up on the same heart of compassion. Jesus had compassion for people, even those who were just there to see if there was going to be some exciting miracles happening. And they also, as servants, need confidence in Jesus and his ability. It was now getting late after an entire day of teaching and healing people. The disciples are concerned about all these people having to get dinner and they need to go home. You need to send them home. They wanted Jesus to send them all away. Someone did a a math calculation. They determined, you know, even if we had $200 or denarii rather, that wouldn't be enough to get food, not to mention where you can buy it. And Jesus asked then for them to look and see what was there. We know from other gospel accounts that there was two little barley loaves and five tiny fish that one nice mother packed for her boy. 
And these men witnessed countless miracles by Jesus over and over. They had done miracles in the name of Jesus. And they're like clueless of connecting any dot here. And in John 6, 6, Jesus asked Philip specifically, um, where are we to buy bread? He was, and it says, in order to test Philip. That was the point. And Philip failed the test. He is testing them as to what they should do. No one can say, no one says, you can do this, Jesus. I know, you turn water to wine, you heal people, you've done all kinds, you can do this. That wasn't anyone's mindset. Jesus is trying to stretch their faith, and he does this with us as well. He puts us to the test. We may believe Jesus can do the impossible, but then we don't trust him when dire circumstances and challenges come into our lives. We need a divine perspective, not calculated human ingenuity about how this situation can be resolved. He is the God of the impossible. And what he does is allow impossible situations to happen in our lives in order to stretch our faith so we have confidence in him. So he tests us. So I don't know if you're in a test today, but are you failing like Philip? Or are you believing who he is? Well, 5,000 men were fed that day along with all the women and kids. How amazing is this miracle recorded in all four gospel accounts? And then the next episode recorded is Jesus walking on the water. And here we see uh, the attributes of Jesus made known to these very slow learners, his disciples, who are just like us. Jesus, first of all, is all-knowing. Immediately, right after this crowd of at least 15,000 are fed, he sent his disciples away and he dismissed the crowds. Jesus compelled them to get into the boat. He insisted, you have to go now. The crowds wanted to make Jesus their king. They thought he would deliver them from Rome, and, you know, free food's not bad either. And Jesus wanted his men gone. And even though it didn't make sense to them, he shooed them away. How often the will of God is different from what we expect or plan. That, I'm sure that made no, why are you Why are you putting us in a boat? Like, go. Alone, Jesus withdrew then to the hills to pray. And what a comfort to know that he knows what we don't know. And he prays for us about that. His disciples didn't know the crowd would try to crown Jesus their king instead of the Romans. They didn't know that they were about to face another fearful storm on the sea. Darkness had fallen, and one of those sudden storms, because it's all like mountains that lead down to the sea, and so it's a narrow tunnel, and the winds just come suddenly and just cause these incredible winds on the sea in the storm. Darkness had fallen, and uh, as they were at this terrible storm, and they struggled at the oars for probably six hours, making no progress to get to land. They are wet. They are tired. They are miserable. They are cold. They are afraid for their lives. And where is Jesus? They're in this storm. Where is he? He's on land, and he's watching them struggle. And why didn't he come sooner? For the same reason he lets you and me struggle, to bring us to the end of ourselves. He knows the perfect time to come and intervene so that he is glorified. It's close to 3 a.m. in the morning, and the power of Jesus is about to be displayed in an amazing way. He came to them walking on the sea. We read in Matthew that Peter got out of the boat to walk to him on the water. We all know that account. 
Jesus intended to walk by. I mean, the way my version reads, it was just like he was going to be, hey, see ya, you know, and just keep going, you know. But no, he was planning to walk alongside of them so they could see it was him. They thought it was a ghost or a, a trick of their minds. But Jesus was demonstrating to them that he loved them. He would protect them. He could have spoke a word to the sea before he ever came, but he didn't. He came to them in the storm. And isn't that the way it usually is in our lives? How often we are just like these disciples. We find ourselves in the storms of our life and we forget he's all powerful. There's nothing too difficult for him. He doesn't want us living filled with fear and anxiety. That doesn't glorify him. There is no circumstance beyond our Father's care. Think about this situation. The disciples had absolutely obeyed the Lord and were in the middle of his will. He said, get in the boat. He said, go out on the Sea of Galilee. This storm came while they were being obedient and doing his will. The safest place to be is in the will of God, even if God's will for you is to be in difficult storms. He has the power to bring you through and to protect you in his timing. It was dark. The winds and the waves were splashing in their face. Hard to make out the face of Jesus walking to them in the water, in the dark. And Jesus is so kind. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So kind. He's concerned about them and their fear. He loves his own. He cares for his own. He has purposes for his own. And as Jesus got into the boat, the winds stopped and they were astonished. The truth of Jesus just having fed 15,000 people by, by creating fish that were dead and cooked already and bread that was already baked, uh, that didn't sink in. In Matthew's gospel, their response was, you certainly are God's son. Seeing Jesus walk on the water opened their eyes to who he was. And he is the same today. He cares for his own. He protects his own. He has a purpose in the life of his own. And he will safely bring us home one day. So the biggest question is, do you know this Jesus personally? Which only transpires when you come to the end of yourself and call on him to save you and trust his death on the cross was sufficient to pay for all of your wretched sin. And then as you grow in that faith, we have opportunity after opportunity to grow in learning to trust him, to sustain us in every storm, whatever storm you have going on today and that's coming tomorrow that you don't even know about. I love the song, Be Still My Soul. And I always think of this uh, verse, the last part, Be Still My Soul, the waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are so loving and gracious and that you have purposes in the places you put us in doing your will that we thought would not be so difficult. And yet you bring storms. You bring us to the end of ourselves. You test us so that we would grow in our faith. I pray for each lady here, Lord, that we would have our utter and complete confidence that you are in control and you will take us through whatever comes into our lives. Help us to trust you and believe what we say we believe, but to believe it and put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.